0: So we go from there to episode 76, and this is a guy, I believe he reached out to us, right? Or did we find out about him? He reached out to us, I believe, I right? I believe
1: he reached out to us, and and I read his book, and, and uh, I love the book. And we're going to tell you about that here in just a second.
0: Well, yeah, episode 76. So we brought on Gary Edgington. Gary Edgington was going through the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Academy. And unfortunately, I mean, this is another tragedy. His father, also a cop, was killed in the line of duty. Gary overcame the tragedy to work his way through various assignments, eventually working counterterrorism from Beverly Hills to Baghdad, Iraq. His book Outside the Wire is loosely based on his exploits, and we have it. It's called Outside the Wire, a novel of murder, love, and war. Loosely based on him, he said. And when he did it, his wife looked at it and said, what do you have going on over there in Iraq? Honey, it's fiction. It's fiction. (laughs) There's nothing going on. Uh, I bet
1: she still hears about that, too. (laughs) <laughs> and then, but you know what, the book, that was a good book. Also, it was, uh, it was hard to put down, you know, the, the action it's full of action. Um, he says it's loosely based on his life and I'm, I'm pretty sure some of the, the combat scenes were probably a lot more real than he would let you lead you to believe.
0: Yeah. Sometimes fact is stranger than fiction, you know? Um, so, but speaking of that, speaking of fact and fiction, Patrick O'Donnell is the sergeant at Cops and Riders. That's episode 77. Uh, after 25 years on the job as a sergeant in the Milwaukee Police Department, Patrick the Sarge O'Donnell, has he's actually – and I'm, I'm a member of the Facebook group – has created a community for cops and riders. So it started as a glorified PDF on how to buy cars. Ended up as the next stage in life for O'Donnell. He turned his passion for writing into a group that helps other aspiring crime writers. In the process, his new series called Brew City Blues has officially hit the shelves. The first in the series, Field Training, is available here exclusively on Amazon. We also have it listed on our book page, and more has come out. I know he's, I think there's two, one or two more books have come out, but it's all, if you click on that link, it'll take you there. But it's called Field Training, Uh, Brew City Blues, Book One, Patrick O'Donnell and Michael Anderley. But what a funny guy too! And we've uh, he set us up with some guests, and we set him up with some guests because he also runs his own podcast.
1: Yeah, he has uh, he, had a, he has a podcast called Cops and Writers.
0: Cops and Writers. So, uh,
1: he's a good Irishman. Uh, I think his parents immigrated from Ireland, uh, and I have since introduced a lot of. It's it's amazing how many people contact Javier and I that you know want to write a book and they they want to pick our brain, which takes about ten seconds because we had a literary agent, we had a publisher. Uh, we had friends in the Netflix community because of Narcos that helped us along the way, so I don't have a lot of, of information to give them, but I talked to Patrick about it, and he now allows us to refer those people to him, and he'll help, uh, he'll help cops, cops that are interested in, in uh, writing a book. You know, he'll help you get started, tell you what to look for, pitfalls, things like that. So check him out, episode, what was that, episode 77?
0: Episode 77, which leads us into Murph to episode 78, and another buddy we got introduced to, uh, Dan Murphy, has got his own podcast as well. Uh, More tales of the NYPD. From laughs to murderous kidnappers, Dan Murphy takes us on another wild ride with more tales from the NYPD. Two major cases— Flip and King of Clubs take Dan around the world to far off Hong Kong and across the U.S. to California. Plus, some of the best practical jokes and story as only NYPD can tell. And he's actually written a book on workplace safety. It's called uh, Workplace Safety. There you go. <laughs> Establishing an Effective Violence Prevention Program by Daniel Murphy and Randall W. Ferris. So, uh, that is, a, but I'll tell you what. One of the things I liked is when he was talking about it. He's talking about how that they played a joke on the one guy, like the captain. Hey, hey, bur- 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 hey, this, you know, this is the captain or whatever. Hey, go fuck yourself. I
1: <laughs> will <laughs> tell you what, man. Once again, the NYPD guys—they got the best sense of humor. They have some of the best practical jokes. After we did uh, Dan's interview here on Game of Crimes, he he teamed up with uh, Tommy Smith, who's also a retired NYPD detective. And started the weekly, I think it's a weekly podcast called Gold Shields. Um, Javier and I were uh, honored to be a guest on the show about a month ago. Um, Highly recommend you check out that podcast as well. But uh, Dan is old school. Him and Tommy both talked about carrying their billy clubs, walking a beat, thumping heads when you had to protect yourself because you want to go home safe every night. Some of his stories, I was a little surprised he told, but, you know, that was a different time back then also. So,
0: But he also worked in a really tough area, and he got along good with the folks. I mean, it was yeah. I was I was impressed by what he did and how he did it.
1: And, you know, and the one thing I remember that he told us about that is when you're out walking to beat, the people that live there all the time, they don't want the riffraff coming into their communities. No. They want the, but the police officer to go run those people off. And you know what? Back during that time, that's what Dan did, Tom, Dan and Tommy both.
0: Well, and after taking a break in December, because we've been going for like 18 months, you know, we put out some Patreon episodes. We come back with uh, episode um, 79, John Mattingly. And the the real story about the Breonna Taylor raid, I mean, he's got a book on it, too. So it said, so the write-up is the episode that can only be told by the person in the doorway, Sergeant John Mattingly. In this two-part episode, we dive deep into the lead-up to the fateful raid, all the intel and work that preceded it. And the aftermath. If you think you know the whole story, of this interview will change your mind. And so we had the book called 12 Seconds in the Dark," a police officer's firsthand account of the Breonna Taylor raid.
1: You know what? And I think you'll agree with this, Morgan. This is probably the most controversial episode we've had on Game of Crimes yep. from episode one. Um, and John is, if, if you listen to this episode, will be the first to tell you that Breonna Taylor absolutely did not have to die that night. It was a needless death. But it wasn't caused by the police, as you'll find out if you read the book or you listen to the, the uh, ep- his episode. It was caused by her rat-ass boyfriend, or the or the guy that was in her apartment that night. And and the things that Matt John Mattingly and his family are still going through is unfreaking believable. The 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 hierarchy at the police department abandoned them. The state of Kentucky, except for the attorney general, abandoned them. Uh, the thing that really ticked me off about the whole thing was the list of pretty people or famous people or woke people or whatever the hell we're going to call these people that uh, without knowing the facts jumped on the bandwagon to to condemn John Mattingly and the Louisville Police Department when the opposite was true. They believed what other people told would tell them without checking the facts themselves, not doing any research. And that's one of the reasons I'm still on my little bandwagon about don't believe everything people tell you, especially the media. Do your own research. You've got a brain. You're smart. You decide what you believe, and that's what we challenge you to do with John Mattingly's interview. It's it's we're gonna I think we're gonna get to meet him in San Diego next week. I certainly hope so because I want to shake the man's hand.
0: Uh you weren't supposed to let on anybody who's gonna be down there, Murph.
1: I meant um, you know, Sam Smith. <laughs> now I this I'm excited to meet the guy.
0: Remind me not to rob a bank with you. <laughs>
1: <laughs> hey, whoever flips first gets the best deal. Just always remember <laughs> yeah. that.
0: Yeah, if you flip, you win. <laughs> All right. Well, hey, but guys, that's, that's good stuff too. So, uh, but you, you definitely go check out his book about 12 seconds in the dark. So the next one we got to then, another great guy, Pete Forselli. And, and I'll tell you what, we have had, we again, guys, we expose it all. We just don't hold back. Uh, there'll be a couple of whistleblowers coming up in the next two to three episodes, but Pete Forselli, uh, the write-up is letting criminals walk was one thing, but when over 1,200 weapons were allowed to cross the border in New Mexico, and one of them killed border agent Brian Terry, Border Patrol agent Brian Terry, Pete Forselli became a whistleblower for one of the most ill-conceived undercover programs ever run by the ATF and DOJ, the real story of Operation Fast and Furious. And I'll tell you to this day, I take my hat off to him. You, you think about it, that they're, they're a bunch of pencil-necked paper pushers making operational decisions that had no clue what was going on out in the field, and it got people killed on the Mexican side of the border and on our side of the border. And it, you, you think about this. How many people would be willing to give up their families uh, or their privacy uh, with their family, their job, their potentially their career, everything else, to stand up and do the right thing? And Pete Verselli was one of those guys.
1: Well, and Pete started out as an NYPD officer. That's, uh, I'm sure that's where a lot of his backbone came from as well as the way he grew up. But his book is, uh, he's, he's looking at uh, through the final drafts now. He actually sent me a draft copy of it. I'm reading through it now. Um, I'm honored that he's asked me to write the forward to his book. So once he reads it, he may say, hey, thanks, but no thanks. You is this know.
0: another one of those things where you get Connie to do it for you? Well,
1: I, just because I write it in crayon, everything everybody thinks that's bad. I don't understand that because I can use different colors.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, but then Connie types it out and sends it off, and everything's <laughs> good. You know, but See, I'm telling bad, you what, bad dog bad.
1: It, it takes a pair of stones to stand up to your own agency like this. And here, you know, he did the right thing. And, and when he retired, he was the uh, deputy director of the ATF. So if he had been wrong, they would have crucified
0: him. Well, and that's the whole thing like with John Mattingly. I guess who was never indicted? Not for anything. John Mattingly. Yeah. It, yep. they, they tried. Nothing there, right? Same thing with Pete Furselli. When you're righteous, you're righteous. And then Pete Furselli was righteous about what he was doing.
1: And we've got another one coming up here. Just, you know, a couple more names here that was also a whistleblower for another agency. But we'll talk about that here in just a second.
0: Yes, we will. So next, thank
1: you, thank you for standing up.
0: Next one comes another fabulous trooper. See, we, we've sprinkled these awesome troopers throughout this, and it's Todd yep, McComas.
1: His new career probably involves a lot of his days as a trooper. It's called comedy.
0: (laughs) Let me tell you, there's some of the stuff people told you. So Todd McComas started off as an Indiana State trooper but went from the road to investigations two years later, from investigating untouchables to horrific homicides to dirty cops. And that's – again – you know, we say nobody hates a bad cop more than a good cop. Todd wasn't thinking too hard about his next phase of life until his luck almost ran out one morning, and that was an interesting, very interesting story. He decided to exercise his funny bone, and the rest is history. He has incredible stories, even funny ones, about his time in law enforcement, including his friendship with one of the biggest names in football. I can't believe he hangs out with this guy, Pat McAfee. You know. I will-
1: and, and, and has become a close, close friend with him. And Pat was instrumental in helping, helping uh, Todd get involved with his uh, comedic career here. So uh, if you're in Indiana, I don't know if he's going outside the state and doing shows now, but just on the, based on the time that we spoke with
0: him, this
1: is a funny man. You know, <laughs> if you get an opportunity to go to a, one of his shows, go to it. I, I'm, I'm pretty sure you're going to come away with tears on, on your cheeks.
0: Yeah, Todd just McComps. don't call him A, Murph.
1: Never. He's a big boy. Well, his pictures look like a big boy, so I don't know.
0: Well, he knows some big boys. Think about all the pro football players he probably knows. True. Next one, too. This is interesting because we have Jason Piccolo. He's another whistleblower, and this has made the news again. Uh, Jason Piccolo blows the whistle on releasing unaccompanied migrant children to criminals. In 2015, Jason Piccolo worked on the DHS human smuggling cell to counter the illicit human smuggling trade, including the unending flow of unaccompanied migrant children. An email that showed how the U.S. government handed over 3,600 kids to verified criminals left Jason asking his leadership, uh, for answers, answers he never received, the top leaders at DHS knew this and did absolutely nothing after being stonewalled multiple times. He became a whistleblower and exposed how children under ten were being put in danger and He wrote two books which uh, you've got you 've got to check out, um, and maybe more since then so out of the shadows, a government whistleblower 's first hand account of how the protection of migrant children became a political firestorm and unwavering a border agent 's journey, the definitive edition so Again, another guy who stood up for what was right. And by the way, he went from somebody who couldn't even complete college the first time, but he has a doctorate now. It's Dr. Jason Piccolo, and he has the Protectors podcast, uh, which he left. He was going to go work somewhere. He did for a little while, and he said, hey, it's not for me. So he's back to doing his podcast again.
1: Yeah, and I I read the one book, Unwavering, A Border Agent's Journey. This guy talks about, and I even asked him on our interview, He's out in the uh, Ote Mesa mountain range by himself all night long tracking down illegal immigrants. And I'm thinking, you know, in the Ote Mesa, there's a lot of critters crawling around there at nighttime. And he's talking about, yeah, you feel them crawl across you, but you just don't move. Dude. And then I ask you, how close is your closest backup unit? Well, on average night, three hours. <laughs> what the so hell's you, wrong with you, Jason?
0: <laughs> when you said that the first time, all I could think of little rascals and puckwheat going, Ote. Okay.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but I mean, here's a stud. I mean, check out his book. Uh, I didn't read the second one. I did read the first one. I got to tell you, this podcast reading, I didn't do this much reading when I was college, getting my four-year degree.
0: Damn, and them words are hard, I tell you.
1: And they don't put pictures in there.
0: (laughs) Well, if there was a stud, then this next episode is a studette. And we got introduced to her by the person who helped her write the book, a guy named Robert Murphy, no relation, I believe to you, Steve Murphy. But it's Julia Mackey. She is a former detective superintendent, so the write-up is Melanie Road was raped and murdered in Bath, Somerset, England, on June 9th, 1984, even though the case was investigated thoroughly. And it was. I'll tell you, when we went through that with her, it was. What a job. No suspects were ever developed. Detective Sergeant Julie Mackey, Avon, and Somerset police discovered a file from the original investigation that intrigued her. Green blood is what they called it. Mm -hmm. For six years, Julie worked tirelessly to get justice for Melanie. Through failed marriages and problems with her children, Julie thought suicide might be her answer. Very transparent about this. But Melanie and her mother, Jean, pulled Julie through her darkest times. This is the story of perseverance and how one woman made a difference three decades later and got justice. And what they did, then we put that on our book list, too, very proudly. Episode 83, 200 Killer, how I brought Melanie Rhodes' Murderer to Justice. And I believe from watching what Robert Murphy say, they won an award for this book over in the UK here just recently.
1: Nice. I mean, here and this is a true story of perseverance, never giving up, uh, staying focused on your mission, following through, strong work ethic. She's, you know, single mom, raising a couple kids and still working full time as a cop. We even talked to her about when she was in uniform and, and not carrying weapons as a police officer in England. And some of the things that she told me just I'm still I still tell some of these stories that she told me about. You know, they didn't have guns. And if the bad guys had guns, they took them away from them. And then if they pulled another weapon on them, could you use the bad guy's gun? Oh, hell no. You couldn't do that. And I, I got my hats off to you guys in, in the UK for, uh, for being unarmed police officers. I mean, we're just not used to that here on the U.S. side. But fantastic story. And, and you know, the fact that you brought closure to that family, that's got to mean I can't even describe how meaningful that must have been to that, that young girl's parents
0: oh. and mother. And just just, and her attitude about stuff, and I like the British accent too, you know. Oh, yeah. She, she just was very upfront, very direct, had a good time. We got her. I think, I think she's on, been on the Sarge's podcast, uh, Cops and Writers. I think she did an interview mm-hmm. there, and uh, they're, they're trying to, you know, trying to get this story out there, and I think it ought to be. So there's some neat stuff coming out.
1: Oh, it is. As, on, you know, the, their use of DNA was, was phenomenal.
0: Uh, and just, but it, it was interesting getting into the way policing is done over in the UK versus how it's done here and the things they have to go through. I thought we had a lot of processes, but man, over there,
1: woo, <laughs> woo, <laughs> yeah. I guess it's where all we're in, where you grew up.
0: It's all where you grew up. Well, speaking of growing up and growing up in the Midwest, the good God-fearing Midwest, this was another one. Well, this one came to us, by the way, of Wayne Stinnett, I believe, right? Yeah, absolutely. Brian Serber, and we're going to have Wayne on. We actually have an interview scheduled with Wayne uh, in the day, I think, tomorrow or the day after.
1: Yeah, tomorrow we're going to do his interview, so it should be out here in the next week or two.
0: Yeah, so we'll we'll be having this interview. We'll go out uh, on Memorial Day, and then the week after that will most likely be Wayne Stinnett. But he introduced us to Brian Serber. Brian Serber has a unique position in law enforcement. From a prosecuting attorney, he went to become a drug agent with the Oklahoma Bureau of Narcotics, he obtained a courtroom confession from a serial rapist. This was the guy in court. He got a confession from a serial rapist and also helped find an eight-year-old girl who was kidnapped. I mean, they'll, both stories, as we say in here, will leave you shaking your head for different reasons. He's also got a book and the book is called Injustice for All, the, in parenthesis, familiar fallacies of criminal justice. And this is kind of his treatise on what he thinks of the criminal justice system. He, 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 he analyzes stuff, but man, what? A, I mean, just the guy that's in court and he hears these things that says this has all the marks or something like that, and they trace this down and they find out that the guy is a frickin' serial rapist.
1: Unbelievable. You know, and and just so you know this, and we have a uh, an Alabama district attorney coming on soon to also in a couple of weeks, as a matter of fact.
0: Are we going to understand him?
1: I will. You may have a hard okay. time.
0: I need a translator.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when he tells you to F off, I'm sure you won't miss that part. No, I'm just kidding.
0: Well, he'll say it like, bless your heart. Yeah. <laughs> bless your little heart. <laughs> you but, try um, so
1: hard. You may not believe this, but all prosecutors are not the same out there. They're all not gung-ho. Well, you probably do believe it now if you see what's going on in New York and some of the other places where the prosecutors uh, are not concerned about convicting criminals. Um, and that's not the case with, uh, with Brian here. This is what police officers would call a cop's prosecutor. This is a guy who if you made the case and it's a good case, he's going to go to the he'll go to the wall with you to get the conviction. This is the kind of prosecutor you want to work with when you're and he
0: was out in the field. He he went from being a a lawyer to an agent Mm -hmm. back to being a lawyer. But this guy was out in the field. I mean, when you listen to the story about the girl, the eight year old girl and her story Mm -hmm. and what she taught, I mean, she very articulate. She told about her story just uh, again. Bunch of studs out there running around,
1: and this is you know him as a, as a as a uniform guy, and then back into a prosecutor role, an attorney role. You're not going to pull anything over on him.
0: No, he, he's seen it all. Yeah. Well, speaking of somebody who's seen it all, and she really has, Regina Patterson King, another friend of yours from DEA. This was episode eighty-five. Regina Patterson King faced a tough childhood. Her parents divorced by the third grade, and she had a father who was addicted to crack for over 15 years. That could have kept her from achieving big things, but she persevered. She didn't let anything become an excuse or allow racism or, or, racism or bigotry to define her. This is a compelling story about how one girl stared down her challenges to rise to the tops of the ranks at DEA. And Steve, I can tell you because she ended up uh, being an ASAC uh, assistant special agent in charge out of uh, the Kansas City area the, on the Kansas side she was i mean the troops out there i i've talked to my friends on the Kansas High patrol and other places they loved her they have nothing but good things to say about Regina and the work he was she was doing out there in Kansas
1: you know i had never met regina until i went i was going out doing a uh, there's a, there's a nonprofit called the DE educational foundation and, and i support them and last year i went on several events with them big brothers big sisters that kind of thing and uh, they were having an event there in Kansas City, asked me to come out and make an appearance. And that's when I first met Regina. A uh, beautiful uh, young lady, that, and I'm sure she would shy away from that term young because she just retired from DEA. But she is... She uh, looks young. She's fantastic. We hit it off, took me to a barbecue restaurant. We got to sit there for an hour and get to know each other. By the end of the day, I'm thinking, Regina, I, I got to tell you about my friend Morgan and I, we have a podcast. And I really need you to come on and tell your story extremely hesitant to do so. She, she just, she initially, she said, no, she said, let me think about it. We did a fellow call or two with her, um, uh, and finally convinced her to come on and what a compelling story she had. And that's the thing with, with most law enforcement guys outside the law enforcement culture, they're not looking to brag or tell you tales, you know, but when you can get them to come out of their shell, man, we get some fantastic stories on here.
0: Well, and I had one of my buddies, uh, on the highway patrol that I used to work with, uh, Ping me and said, hey, have you heard anything? Has she going to be like maybe the next, because the current Colonel Herman Jones is stepping down. So I did ping her. She said, no, no interest in being the Colonel, but there may be other plans in store for her. So you folks just need to hang on and see what happens with Rogina Patterson King.
1: Uh, I, she's got me as a fan.
0: Yeah. Well, here's another fan. Uh, <laughs> Remember when we said to hey, crap your p-. This by far was one of the funniest stories ever told on Game of Crimes but it it, it, it comes with them uh, some tragedy with it too but um Kevin Black was episode 86 Kevin Black survived the ups and downs of his career and his personal life. You ought to hear the number of times he was hired and fired by the same sheriff. Uh, (laughs) He was adopted at five months old. It would take over 40 years for Kevin to solve one of his biggest cases, finding his biological parents. He wraps an emotional story about life around his law enforcement career, his first contact with Murph 25 years ago, losing his shift partner in an ambush, and two of the funniest stories we've ever heard on Game of Crimes.
1: (laughs) We're still getting comments.
0: (laughs) Oh my god. <laughs> I like got a
1: friend of mine uh Steve Dow who is he's an avid listener and and uh, he's involved with the university that I've been supporting for a while. Um he just he tells me he said you know when when uh when Kevin's telling his stories one of the stories he had to pull over to the side of the road and and uh and maybe shed a tear or two but then he had to pull over again because he's laughing so hard when Kevin started talking about crap in his pants. <laughs> Oh my gosh! Oh, it's a, uh, Kevin is just—he's one of these guys that you don't want to mess with. I mean, he's just a good old Southern boy that will pick you up and break you into if if, if he just feels the need to. Uh, not bashful at all, will tell you what's on his mind. And He doesn't care if you're the sheriff or the chief or you know uh, uh, somebody that's subordinate to him. Which is, you gotta—you uh, know—you gotta respect a man that stands up and speaks his mind. I do. You yeah. Know when no, I- oh, you stand with him.
0: Just uh if you're wondering what the smell is, it's Kevin.
1: <laughs> One of the best senses of humor you'll ever
0: meet. Something he even told on himself. He said, Yeah, that was me. You know.
1: We oh, you know what? Uh, uh Wayne Stanette, as a matter of fact, called me after Kevin's episode came out. And he's like, I didn't know you knew Kevin. And they're trying to they're trying to steal Kevin away from North Carolina to come and work in Oklahoma. Uh
0: yeah, that's weird. We actually talked about that with him a yeah. little bit. Yeah. Yeah. So a good we'll story. see what funny, happens.
1: Just, very funny, very funny, but also well, very heart wrenching. It's a good story.
0: Very, it is, and I'll tell you with his partner, and then it's the story of his parents. So, um, yeah, prepare to shed a tear uh, for two reasons. You're going to die laughing, and uh, you're going to you're going to cry. So, yeah. Then we get to episode 87. Michael Hearns, a very interesting man, because he stayed in touch with me. He's exchanged some emails. Murphy actually sent me a Tommy Bahama. Uh, coupon uh, that he wasn't going to use. So, <laughs> uh, so anyway, well, so, Ma-
1: the trash.
0: Yeah, so Michael Hearns covered a lot of territory in his 27 years at Coral Gables, Florida, from seizing millions of dollars in cartel cash working undercover to investigating serial killers. Michael has applied his unique set of skills to Hollywood and writing, catch his tex- technical expertise in the movie, The Cuban, and follow the exploits of Detective Cade Taylor. Cade Taylor in three heart pounding books that will leave you wanting more. And on the book list, we have them. Uh, his novel, "Trust No One," a Cade Taylor Cade Taylor novel, that was his debut. Followed by one more move and "Grasping Smoke." That was his third novel. So I he's read got the some first one,
1: no, I read this first book, "Trust Trust No One." Loved it. Loved it. it. Maybe because of of you know living in Miami back in the late eighties, early nineties, and knowing a lot of the areas he was talking about down there, but just. Love the book. It's got a lot of uh, uh, great action in it and it's got some really good surprises. You can't figure it out. It's one of those whodunits.
0: Well, we know who done this next one, and it was Adam Bailey. He is the chocolate operator, episode 88. Yeah. So uh, you got to him through the shot show, right? Wasn't that you meet him at the shot show?
1: We did. Um, uh, uh, Premier Body Armor from Gaston, North Carolina, I believe it is. That um, uh, doesn't sound right. Anyway. They sponsored us to come out to the shot show this year in Las Vegas. Say that
0: fast three times.
1: <laughs> I can't. I just I almost said some dirty words right there. <laughs> but the but the owner of Premier Body Armor uh, said, hey, I've got some special guests I want to introduce you to. And one of them was, these guys are these people were social media influencers. And one was Adam Bailey, known as the chocolate operator. Now, this guy is a former police officer in Spartanburg, South Carolina. Did a number of years. You'll hear about his story in law enforcement theory. It is kind of funny what he talks about. But then decides to do the social media thing, and, and here, I mean, you don't even know this, Morgan. Last week, Javier and I were, in, were outside of San Antonio in Comfort, Texas on Friday night. We spoke at the uh, Singing Water. Well, I knew you tour. were down there. Well, Chocolate came out. He did? Yeah, he brought a date, came out, and, and stayed for the show. Uh, I felt so bad because I couldn't get even comp tickets. Because <laughs> we usually get people comped into shows. Uh, but just came out to support us. You know, and that's an hour outside of San Antonio. Gave up his Friday night to come out spot, or to support Javier and I. So, uh, you know, go back and listen to Episode 88. Find out a little bit more about this. Check out his pictures. This man's got arms now that are about as big as my freaking legs. You know, he was, yeah, showing one, those, he was showing those guns off Friday night.
0: One hit that that comes from him being a U.S. Marine and then the Spartanburg Police Department. So uh, he was working undercover as a member of the FBI task force. And he made the leap after eight years following another Spartan bird cop, the donut operator, who we're still trying to get on yeah. uh, to become a powerhouse social media influencer called the chocolate operator. So, on the webpage uh, for the uh, episode, you'll see his bio site. So, go there and, and guys, support him. You know, uh, he's doing, he's, he's making a living trying to uh, mm-hmm. do training and, you know, and be influential. And so, guys, just, just go out and help him out.
1: Absolutely. Chocolate operator.
0: Episode 89 is another operator, Ed Morales. This one is one of the most fundamental days in FBI history that changed that, and we got to talk to the guy. So, Ed Morales, this is a true last-man-standing story of bravery and heroism. On April eleventh, 1986, in Miami, Florida, eight FBI agents and two murderous bank robbers engaged in a five-minute gunfight. There were 150 shots fired during the incident. In the end, nine out of the ten participants were shot. The two bank robbers were dead, as well as two FBI agents Five other agents were wounded, including FBI agent Special Morales. He was severely injured, shot twice. This event changed law enforcement training equipment and tactics throughout the U.S. And, in fact, we've got his book on our slide. It's called FBI Miami Firefight, Five Minutes That Changed the Bureau.
1: This was um, when I went through the DEA Academy in 1987. The, the Bureau was doing a video production, of a reenactment of that shooting. And on Wednesday nights, when we went through the academy, they called it agent enrichment night. Um, and you had to wear a suit to dinner that night. You got a steak for dinner. They even had a bottle of wine on the table for you. But then you had to go listen to a guest speaker. And it, what it was, it was, it was Eddie Morales, along with the, the lead Metro Dade uh, detective. It was a sergeant. I can't remember his name right now, but they, he led the investigation of this. Just to, to hear it back then, would send chills up your spine. But now to have Eddie on the show and hear the whole story and look at the pictures at the same time that he's telling us so that you can kind of map out, uh, you know, from diagrams that are on the internet, holy cow. And you're right. Things, so many things changed because of the mistakes that were made. And, and that's what I like about Eddie. He was honest, uh, you know, not saying, no, we did this, we did that. He's, this is the mistake we made here. Here's a mistake we made there. But the good thing is it led to, uh, positive changes, first in the Bureau. And, you know, you guys know us. We we bust on the Bureau quite often, having a little fun with them. But the truth is, when they make changes, other law enforcement listens. Yep. And we did the DEA.
0: And like we say, our issue is never with the agents. It's always with the bureaucracy, you know, and the suits. And never, I never had problems with agents in the field. And Ed is, a, Ed is an agent's agent. Man, this dude was a freaking stud. So uh, our hat's off to you. And make sure, like I said, you check out his book, Uh, that we have on the site there. So it was a FBI Miami firefight, five minutes that changed the Bureau. Well, we had several shootings, uh, things in a row. And this next one is no different. It's episode 90. TJ Webb shot six times, stays in the fight. So uh, this was two seconds on a cold December night, changed TJ's life forever. That's how long it took for the suspect in an attempted murder to open fire and hit TJ six times. In spite of the significant injuries to his torso and leg, TJ returned fire before falling to the ground and shattering both arms and wrists. What follows is a story more of more than survival. It's a story of defying the odds, recovering physically and mentally, and getting back in the game. And this is another guy where we uh, we want to support him. He's trying to go out on the speaking circuit, trying to take his lesson and life lessons to the other folks. So we've got his website on there and his Instagram on there. So make sure you guys go support him and join him. You know, and, and do what you can to help out TJ.
1: This is one of the most motivational people we've had on here. Just like Vic, uh, uh, Claudia Apolinar. T.J., there's absolutely no reason he should be alive today. I mean, you you hear his story. Not only was he shot and went down and lost his weapon, but when he fell, the steel plates hit his hand and shattered the bones in his hand. Here's a guy that, as he's recuperating, never felt sorry for himself. If you know the story of Jason Redmond, the Navy SEAL, who put the sign up as he's recuperating in in, uh, Walter Reed or whatever hospital he was in in Washington, D.C. after almost being killed in Afghanistan, Um. Put the sign up. If you're coming in here to feel sorry for me, don't. Get the hell out of here. Well, TJ did the same thing because he just he didn't want anybody to feel sorry for him. He wanted to get better. He overcame all the odds. His doctors told him, hey, you know, it'll probably be 18 months before you walk in. He's like, no, nah, I'm going to run a marathon by the end of the year. And they're like, nah, no, you're not. And what's he do? He runs two half marathons and an, and an Ironman competition. So now TJ is on the circuit. Look him up on, uh, on social media. Uh, let me pull it up here. I just had it, yeah,
0: it on there. If you, if you just go to our webpage, we've got everything listed on there. We've got his website and his Instagram handle listed on there. TJ yeah. Webb. Check him out. His uh, yep.
1: TheTJWebb.com. I mean, I love this guy. Just extremely motivational. And I've just found out recently, like within the last few weeks, he got to meet Jason Redman. Yeah. That's cool. That's cool.
0: That is cool. And who knows? Maybe he won't be the only one. We'll have to mm. find out. Oh yeah, we'll see. Dun, dun, dun. Well, <laughs> speaking of finding out, you want to talk about a cold case. Um, this is one of the ultimate cold cases. In fact, it was a play, turned into a play, and I play, I was in this play in high school. And Vince Bancoque, uh, as if you pronounce it the way it should be, but Vince Pancoke. this came to me through a buddy of mine. Rich Zach, uh, he's at Microsoft. Him and I have been buddies for a lot of years. He does a lot of work with the criminal justice public safety community. In fact, he's helping me on the project I'm working on right now, the National Center for Open and Unsolved Cases. Microsoft has been a big partner in that. Uh, But the write-up is on August 4th, 1944, Anne Frank, her family and friends, were captured by the Nazis and sent to concentration camps where almost everybody died. The mystery remained. Who betrayed them? Vince, with the help of a dedicated team and advanced technology and artificial intelligence from Microsoft, believe they now have the answer. And it became a great book. The Betrayal of Anne Frank, and investigation. As they say, it's less a mystery unsolved than a secret well-kept. And they believe they figured out who was the person who gave the information to the Nazis.
1: You know, we've all heard of Anne Frank. I mean, when you grew up, when I was growing up through elementary school, you heard about the diary of Anne Frank, you know, that was required reading at some point in your in your school career. Um, but then you kind of move on and you don't give it much thought. But, you know, there are these people out there that are interested in coming up with the truth to find out what actually happened. And, you know, hats off to Vince that he created such a, a uh, fantastic reputation for himself that in retirement, the folks over in that part of Europe called him and wanted him to lead this investigation to see if they could come up with a real story. And they'll be the first to tell you, this is not 100% conclusive. This is the person that, that dimed out Anne Frank and her family. But it based on the evidence they've uncovered, it's the most likely person. So if you're into those kind of conspiracy cases, uh, you like World War II, this is a the book you should check out and listen to Vince Spankoczy's interview here on Game of Crimes.
0: It is it's 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 interesting and he's out there presenting on it too. And again, uh, this shows you what you can do with high tech, how you can harness it to help sort through thousands and thousands of records. So it was great stuff. Well, speaking of great stuff, we got great stuff too because in episode 92, Pierre Pete Charette, the crazy, you know. Canadian, the Frenchman from Quebec. He actually, so uh, again, seriously, Pete Charette, Pete Pierre Charette started life in Quebec, Canada, but decided early on He wanted to be a cop after coming to the United States and joining the U.S. Army, which there are funny stories there. Pete got a break and started his law enforcement career in Fort Lauderdale. His knack for making cases and undercover work led him to uh, what eventually became DEA. His first assignment was in Paris because he spoke French, Mm -hmm. working on the real, the real French connection. His exploits are legendary. His stories are amazing. We've got two of his books on there. One hell of a ride, uh, the investigative and undercover life of a DEA agent, and then one hell of a ride, too, from the French connection to Operation Southern Comfort. And just to tie this in real quickly, when I was out in Las Vegas here a few weeks ago, I happened to run into Mark Wahlberg Hmm. and just told him about episode 16 we had with Ed Davis. Hey, we did this. We had a chat. He did. Let me take a selfie. Uh, He asked for my number. I said no. I just don't do that, you know, uh, for people I meet. Uh, But you know, give me yours. I'll get back in touch with. However, but as we find out from Pierre Pete Charette, uh, he actually got a hold of Wahlberg, and his people are looking at his books as potentially turning it into a movie.
1: Yeah, uh, and I think since that time, that may have turned out to be a scam. Oh, I think Uh, Pete wasn't happy about that at all. But you know what? He is a uh, one of the very, very, very few people. That we've ever had on twice. We want to bring you back on for another interview to talk about Operation Southern Comfort. So, and I think, I think his books just went on, uh, uh, Kindle or Audible. So no, that's, Audible. That, that's he just
0: story. got him put out on Audible. So he was that's launching, I saw it on, um, Facebook and stuff. He's, uh, uh, it was just, uh, the books were out on Audible and he's promoting it to everybody. So congrats on that, buddy.
1: Absolutely. We're going to have you back on again soon, Pete. So thank you very much, brother.
0: Yeah. And here's a person. Next one, episode 93, is somebody we both know. And this is interesting, too, because, again, well, you traitorous bastard, you left me and you went to Florida. But before you did that, (laughs) we were both living here in Loudoun County and a former DEA agent and friend of yours and ours, Mike Chapman, he goes from DEA to Loudoun County Sheriff and a bunch of controversy, not that he started it all, but I mean, when, when you saw what was happening with Loudoun County with the CRT stuff, at thought at the school board meetings and what happened in the high school that my daughter and son went to. Mm-hmm. So Mike Chapman served in a variety of positions for DEA in the U.S. and overseas. Some funny stories about overseas. There were a lot of challenging cases and tough times working at DEA's, working as GEA's chief of public affairs, exposed Mike to the tough decisions he would have to make when he was elected sheriff of Loudoun County, Virginia, the largest full service sheriff's office in the Commonwealth of Virginia. He found himself and his department in the middle of two of the biggest controversies in the United States, obviously, as well as what was going on in Loudoun County. So. This will be pretty cool. I mean, it was a good episode. And Mike is, I mean, you could tell Mike got a lot of media training because I've watched him on TV here and other stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, he, I mean, he, great thing about being a Sheriff Murph is you get to do what you want to do.
1: Absolutely. And, and he's doing one hell of a job. I'm not kidding you. Was just elected as Sheriff of the Year for the entire United States by the National Sheriff Association. That's a big deal, ladies and gentlemen. The, the, to be recognized out of all the thousands of sheriffs in the United States as the top sheriff. That's something for him to be proud of. And then you look at Mike's family. I mean, he's got, I think he's got members in every branch of the military. He's got Annapolis grads. I think he's got a West point grad. I'm not sure if he had an air force Academy grad or not, but coast guard his, I mean, his family is just like life of service. They they bleed red, white, and blue. I mean, how can you not be proud of a man like that and his family? So uh, just proud of what you're doing, Mike, keep it up brother. And, if you can send me hundred bucks, I'll vote for you from Florida.
0: But <laughs> you got you you got that confused with Chicago, Murph. Oh, sorry, sorry. <laughs> That's Chicago. Vote early, say, vote often. Yeah.
1: I will say when I lived in Loudoun County, I voted for Mike Chapman as sheriff.
0: Well, and I think he's a shoe and he'll he'll be a lock again for this year. So Lord, we'll see what so. happens. I hope so. Well, episode 94. This was a good one. I mean, yeah. this is a good one because it comes with another book, too. This comes from Ken Croak. Uh, ATF, another great ATF story. ATF agent Ken Croak did what no other federal agent has ever done before, penetrate the pagan outlaw motorcycle gang and become a fully patched member and officer of the club. Because of his prior business background and his head for numbers, he ended up becoming the treasure, the national treasure, yeah. working alone most of the time. Almost all the time he had to rely on his wits and luck to stay alive. couple things you'll hear in the story about how he lucked out. He was just somebody else's in the wrong place and take down the most violent members of the most of the notorious pagan outlaw motorcycle gang. He's got a book called Riding with Evil Taking Down the Notorious Pagan Motorcycle Gang, but I will tell you without a doubt this is a, another story we got some of the most remarks on one of the grossest people alive. Oh yeah. <sighs> not not Ken, messy. not Ken. No. The guy he talked about.
1: Oh, and I, I don't even want to talk about it because it's so gross. It just, it'd make you throw up in your mouth. I'm not kidding you. But <sighs> we were introduced to, uh, to Ken by Pete Friselli, who we just talked about from ex- episode A. And also a buddy of mine from DEA, uh, Greg Tarundolo, had told me about Ken quite some time ago. I think they, they've worked together in life after law enforcement. Uh, so, Greg, I just want to give you a shout out, brother. And, and uh, when Pete spoke, I listened. When you spoke, I you know, I probably went in one area and out the other, but still love you, brother. <laughs> I'll hear about that.
0: Yeah. He well, listens hey, to us. And we'll see. We'll see. You know, there there may be some things in the work for Ken, but it ends up Ken's working for a guy that I used to work with. So when I texted him, said, hey, here's what was going on. Oh, yeah, I loved him. So nobody wants to go eat with Ken, though, because they're still concerned that. Uh, oh, um, it's nasty.
1: It's nasty.
0: Well, they're still concerned that somebody might try to whack him. You know, the, the pagans still got a beef with Ken. Yeah. So, yeah. But let me tell you what, this next one, 96, uh, if Natasha Herzig was one of the toughest episodes we did, um, and, uh, you know, we, we talked about some other tough episodes, this is without the doubt, this, this is the toughest episode I think Murphy and I had together. Um, Kevin Holtry, man, definition of survivor. In the dictionary under survivor, it says, see Kevin Holtry, shot six times, three bullets still in his body, a paraplegic and double amputee. Kevin survived, but it wasn't easy. There were dark days ahead, and he was within one second of ending it all, but he didn't, and his story of survival and purpose is one of the most emotional episodes we've ever told. It was. I had to stop. I, in fact, we didn't stop, but we we stopped a couple times for him, but the pain he was going through, the the, the way it affected him, dude, I'm telling you, to, still to this day, um, I just wish there was something I could do. I feel so bad. I wanted to do something for him.
1: You know... Uh, Kevin, God bless you, man. You still got a sense of humor. He talked about how he used to be six foot four or five, and now he's three foot eight. Well, it's because he lost his legs, both legs amputated. You got to have a sense of humor to say things like about yourself. Yeah. But watching it, just like you said, watching him on screen as he went through these pain bouts that only lasted for a minute or less, but are so painful that it's got tears running down this man's face and when it happened a second time, I got tears running down my face because you just your heart bleeds for the guy. You want to help him, and there's not a damn thing we can do because of the piece of shit that shot him, who is also worm food now. Um, and and I made a mistake a while ago. I, I said uh, one of our listeners, Steve Dow, had pulled over because you know he teared up on the. It was on Kevin's episode. Oh, and for a listener to write in and tell me that that's that's extremely unusual, but that's how motivational. That's how much people's hearts bleed for what the men and women of law enforcement who have almost given this ultimate sacrifice go through. Um, and then, you know, what I loved about Kevin's episode is that episode 96 with Brian Holland, his partner, that's the first time we've ever done that. You know, so we got, we got Kevin's story and then we got it from Brian's point of view. And, and both of them have great senses of humor. Brian's probably the last guy in the world I'd ever want to piss off, I'll be honest with you.
0: Well, yeah, let's let, so let's talk about that because then we go from uh, well because Brian Holland was his partner that day. Brian is the one who takes out the shooter and mm-hmm. saves Kevin's life, make sure you know nothing else goes on. But uh, so uh, the write-up is the day Kevin Holtry was shot, which was episode ninety-five. This is episode ninety-six. Now Brian Holland stopped the threat. This amazing story is, it has an even more amazing beginning. If you knew where he grew up, mm-hmm. facing adversity before eighteen, more most more than many adults see their entire lifetime. Like Kevin, he persevered, avoiding gang life and dealing with a father in prison for murder. Brian's mother gave him the advice that would carry him forward for the rest of his life. Some funny stories in there that were in there in that Bearcat taking people there and he's sitting on the guy and he's like, oh, my bad. You know, he's, he's, it's jack, my leg.
1: The jacket that his mother gave him when he went I was to about college. to say that.
0: Murphy He goes to college. He's up in Boise State. He flips up the collar. No, not Boise State, but Idaho State University. Yeah. Flips up the collar and it says so-and-so prison, you know.
1: <laughs> you gotta love it. Oh, man. And then the picture we had of, of Brian when he got to meet President Obama.
0: <laughs> he was not impressed. He says the brother didn't even have a good handshake.
1: <laughs> so it was like shaking a lady's hand. Yeah, <laughs> he flimsy.
0: Not, not, not impressed. Oh, not impressed. Good stuff, though. But somebody who is impressive is our next guest, episode 97. And this ties back to our episode we had with Rob uh Zach, the takedown of Victor Boot. Because the Andre was the agent at that time over there in Thailand who put everything together in order for a special operations division and Rob and his team to come in and do this. So we get to talking to – so let's talk about this real quick. Episode 97, Andre Kellum. Andre doesn't know the meaning of the word quit. He overcame a tough childhood on Chicago's South Side, joined the Marines, graduated from college, and eventually made it to DEA. I mean, if you saw what his father used to have him do and what his father did, but the dude goes to college, his father, trying to make amends, takes him to college in a taxi. (laughs) You got to love that. Oh, man. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Worked in five different countries during his career, making an impact everywhere he went from Project Synergy, DEA's largest ever global synthetic drug takedown. Very interesting case. To pulling together the resources and people to coordinate the takedown event, Victor Boot, Andre got it done. And he actually wrote a book. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's also semi-autobiographical. It's a fiction, but it's called Truth and Terror, which is the site, truthandterror.com. Truth and Terror, a drug enforcement story. Andre
1: is a, uh, a real gentleman since I first met him, he always presented himself professionally. He has a, uh, a very, very friendly attitude. He's not hesitant to tell you what he thinks about situations, but he doesn't do it in a confrontational manner. He does it in an encouraging manner to, to you know, promote positive thinking and constructive criticism. And so when I read his book, you know, and I know he says it's, you know, it's loosely based on, on his life. And I'm reading things in there. I'm like, Damn, I never knew this about you, Andre. And, and before we did the interview, I was talking to him, just getting ready for the interview. And I'm like, man, I didn't know about this and that. And he's like, that didn't happen, Murph. It's a fiction book. You know, I put it in there. But things that did happen was, like you said, with uh, with Victor Boot. You know, he was actively involved in that. With the uh, the posses down in Jamaica, when when Andre was stationed there, he was actively yep. involved in that. He's got some fantastic stories. And then at the end of his career... He gets the, uh, uh, a Presidential Recognition Award from President Obama. That doesn't happen to a lot of DEA guys. That, that's pretty phenomenal that he got that. So hats off to you, Andre, and thanks for coming on the show, brother.
0: That's good stuff. Well, hey, now in episode 98, we're down to our last two episodes because this is episode 100. So we're not going to review our own episode unless you want to hear Murph and I talk for five minutes. So, hey, well, on episode 100, what do we do? Well, let's go back and start at episode 51. No.
1: Uh, talk about deja vu. <laughs>
0: deja vu. It's deja vu all over again, according to Yogi Berra. So this was interesting, too, because we brought on an author, uh, somebody who actually we did an ad for. So Audio Boom, working mm-hmm. with a company called Podium, got us a, a host red ad, which is what we did. And it was Jared Kobeck and How to Find Zodiac. And we thought this is an interesting story. So we interviewed him. And this was a fun time. I mean, he has turned down lots of interview requests for podcasts, but he did ours because, you know, hey, we were studs. He admitted that. He said, yeah, you guys are studs. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to be on a Studley podcast. That's right.
1: It's our story, and we're sticking to it.
0: But, he, but here's the other thing that we talked with him, said, but you did the research. You just didn't read a couple of articles and go this. He spent a year doing the research on this, but uh, the write-up is the FBI's investigation into the Zodiac Killer remains open and unsolved. That's according to the FBI. Maybe not for long. Jared Kobeck's book, How to Find Zodiac, which is available on Audible and Amazon, explores a new theory of the case that brings to light an entirely new name. Jared takes us down the rabbit hole on his investigation and tells us what it took to develop and name his main suspect. And even he says he doesn't know if he's right. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, he was very transparent about that, but listen and see what you think. Keep an open mind. Not everything is as it seems. So we have, uh, on his book list, we've got, he had two books he wrote about. He's got several more. Just go to Amazon and read that. But the first one was called Motor Spirit, the long hunt for Zodiac. And then the follow-up to that was how to find Zodiac. Uh, but I mean, interesting guy, great episode.
1: And as you said, the thing I really liked about Jared was his transparency. And he's the first to tell you, I'm, I'm trying to prove this is not the guy. Yeah. And and at the end of it, it's like, I don't know if this is the guy or not. This is just a most likely suspect based on the evidence he found. So his honesty really made the the interview. I, I love doing the interview with him because we found out so much about the Zodiac killer and who it potentially could have been. So um, just, I'm glad that we did meet him through a host read ad and developed and, and thank you, Jarrett, for coming on to game yeah. of crimes.
0: Great job! So, remember, go check out his books, uh, Motor Spirit and How to Find Zodiac. So, last one, we're finishing up, and we just finished this one. Alex Dominguez, another buddy of yours. Alex Dominguez, yeah. another Cubano, another Cuban. Alex Dominguez was one year old when his family fled Cuba. He overcame numerous obstacles to eventually graduate from the University of Miami. Sorry about that, with a degree in finance. But he had a cushy job, Murph. He had, he had, he had the fancy clothes, the fancy shoes, a great job in a multinational bank. But what did he do? He read an article in the Wall Street Journal and said, that's the shits. That's what he said. That's the shit. I want to do that. So he gave up his fancy suits and shoes to take on the toughest job he ever had. A huge drop in pay. I think he 50% pay cut. And he tells us about a couple of his big cases, one of them involving a machete and threats to remove the reproductive organs of an informant. Plus, he's a stand-up comedian. He tries out some of his stand-up comedy on us as well.
1: You know, Alex is, I'm not kidding you, he is one of the funniest people I've ever met in my life. Um, and, I, and I i think I told this during the interview. Uh, we were both ASACs together in Special Operations Division towards the, the latter part of my career. And, and Derek was our boss as he was special agent in charge and Derek would have these meetings and we'd have like 15 ASACs coming there, you know, from all the different agencies and you'd have these meetings and Derek is so animated everything. And finally, Alex would start talking. He's the only man I've ever seen out talk Derek Maltz. <laughs> By the end of the meeting, Derek's just sitting there, just sitting in his chair, just shaking his head. Like, I don't even know what to do, what to say here. And we're all, we've got tears running down our cheeks from laughing so much. And the thing is, I don't think Alex realizes how funny he is. I don't think he realizes that, that uh, <laughs> he just lightened the mood. Uh, but some of the cases he was involved in and the places he got stationed throughout the world in his career, uh, things he's done after DEA.
0: Yep. And yeah, some of the work he did overseas, he was, he was in Afghanistan when Joe Piersante was shot.
1: Yep. The man is still a stud. Uh, in fact, he, that particular job you're talking about, he was the lead mentor for the head of Afghani intelligence. And I, I don't know if I told you after the fact, but I was offered that position one time and I turned it down. I went to Afghanistan for a few weeks. There was no reason for me to go back. So God bless you for going over and doing it. Now. Said, thanks well, for plus coming they on the had show. the
0: word intelligence in there and you go, okay, I get Afghan, but what's intelligence? So, yeah.
1: Well, Murphy and intelligence don't go together in the same sentence to start with. So,
0: you know, <laughs> there you go. Oh my God. Well, hey guys, that wraps it up, man. That is a review of episode 51 through 99. And, uh, um, there's actually an extra month in there. Like I said, we took the month of December off. We put Patreon episodes in there instead, but man, when I look back on this Murph and all the books, uh, again, just, I mean, we got to thank you guys. Thank you guys for doing this. Um, it, it was great to do this review and hopefully I appreciate you guys playing along when we do this, cause we like to recap this cause it triggers thoughts in our minds stuff. Oh man, I forgot about this. And this is so funny. It's amazing what we remember about the episodes when we go, go back and start reviewing them.
1: It is. And, and we've got just as good a guest as we've had phenomenal guests on the show. Uh, we have more phenomenal guests coming on. Uh, you may have picked up on some of the clues we dropped out while we were talking here for the last couple of hours. Um, f- we're getting people on here that we've had to work with for months to get them on the show. But their story is is that we think is, is that good. Um, I've read their books, the ones that have books out there. Uh, one, I don't even mention Wayne Stanett, who has been instrumental in getting us some of the, the interviews on here, including, um, uh, Kevin Holtry, because I didn't know anybody in Idaho and I called Wayne in Oklahoma and he found us a contact and got me Kevin's information, his, his, uh, contact information. So we're bringing Wayne on, uh, the others I don't want to tell you about cause we want it to be a surprise, but trust me, they're going to be every bit as good as the interviews we've had over the past couple of years.
0: It is. So let us bring this to a close. This is our 100th episode. We should have whistles and bears. Hold on a second. I just popped open some champagne. Uh, We're going to pour it. It looks suspiciously like a water bottle, but close enough. So, hey, guys, we hope you enjoyed this. Again, head on over to Apple, Spotify, give us those five stars, let us know what you think about the episode, drop in your comments. Hopefully you guys appreciated this review of that. Head on over to com for more information about the show. Check out our book list, Order those books. Help support the people. Go to the episode page. TJ Webb, Chocolate Operator, all of those guys. Help support uh, them in terms of what they do. Follow us on that thing called social media at Game of Crimes on Twitter, Game of Crimes podcast on Facebook and the Instagram. Uh, Make sure you also go over to Game of Crimes fans on Facebook. Facebook, type in Game of Crimes, and you'll see the fan page pop up. Sandy Salvato, our favorite mafia queen, just answer a couple questions, get close. If you're deemed worthy of admittance to the inner sanctum, you shall therefore be admitted, and in, uh, you'll be able to engage in hilarity uh, and all the other stuff we do. But uh, tell you, Murph, where you got to be, though, is patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. That, that, that is where good stuff is happening. We've got uh, some good stuff coming out for this month. We've got a uh, tribute on Narcometer paying homage to one of our episodes. Uh, and we're going to have some good stuff. We're going to put some stuff on the free stuff, but we may hold back a couple of very interesting things and put them on Patreon. Coming out of the Southern California Gang Conference.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's uh, come over check us out. There's you, there's a lot of content. There's as much content, if not more, on Patreon than there is on the regular Game of Crimes podcast channel. It's nine one one. What's your emergency? Uh, no no no
0: one one nine. You got it.
1: one nine nine.
0: I can't believe it's, you got uh, that right.
1: It's Q&A where our listeners ask us. We haven't turned down a single question yet that any of our listeners have asked us on there. We have case of the month. Uh, you can't make this shit up. Some of the funniest stories involving criminals that you will ever hear. So come over and try us out. See what you think about it. Uh, and, and what Morgan was telling you, giving us the five stores on, April, on the Apple Podcasts and Spotify and so forth, that goes a long way in promoting the podcast. So we do sincerely ask that you do it each episode. Uh, if you don't like it, do it anyway.
0: That's right. It's good for you. Bless your heart. That's right. Bless your little heart. <laughs> well, hey, guys, bless your heart. And thank you guys for supporting us. We appreciate it. We've gotten to 100 episodes. So thank you, thank you, thank you. And a big thank you to all of our players out there. And thank you once again for playing the biggest, baddest, most dangerous game of all, the 100th episode of Game of Crimes.